Hello and welcome to History's Most Notorious, the show that takes a good look at the biggest motherfuckers who ever lived. Evil motherfuckers, bad motherfuckers, crazy motherfuckers, badass motherfuckers. If they were ruthless and a little unhinged, we'll cover them. It would seem, on the face of it, quite uncontroversial that the Emperor Nero would feature highly on a list of history's greatest motherfuckers. He certainly ticks a lot of the boxes of rampant motherfuckery. Tyranny, despotism, megalomania, demagoguery, killing your mother, it's all on the list, and Nero is guilty on all counts. But who was Nero? A product of his own mania? A teetering, deranged man-baby desperate for praise to cover his own failings? A man who forced people to like him, and when they didn't, had them executed, exiled, or tortured? Well, yes. Or was he a young man, woefully unequipped for the office into which he was cajoled by his mother, a victim not just of his own paranoia, but of the unspoken failings of the political machinery of a Roman state that dared not question its own decisions? Was Nero, in, in effect, a motherfucker or not? Well, of course he was. Thanks for reading. But it might be a little more complicated than that. Nero was born Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus on December the 15th, 37 AD at Antium, the only child of the former consul Gnaeus and Agrippina the Younger, the sister of the Emperor Caligula, who was also a bit of a motherfucker. As the great-grandson of Julia the Elder, the only biological child of the Emperor Augustus, who was also of good blood and a prime candidate for the throne once Agrippina had cleared his path with a combination of Machiavellian guile and poisoned mushrooms, there is, of course, no better Roman emperor to qualify as a motherfucker than Nero. Everyone knows the name, and everyone has an idea of just what a motherfucker he was. He was the mad emperor, a swollen, sweaty, vain, neurotic madman, and he was. But he was also young, fiercely loved by those closest to him, artistic, but not particularly talented, and idealistically ambitious. We'll skip over most of his life, which is well known and covered just about everywhere. The common view is that... When he died, Rome let out a huge collective sigh of relief, settled down to some semblance of normality and got on with the job of building aqueducts and shuffling about in togas, you know, normal Roman stuff. In reality, Nero's death was a catalyst for unheard of chaos. It was unplanned, unwanted, unwelcome and caused uproar. It threw succession out of the window, any long-term plans of the empire into jeopardy, spanners into the works of every part of the Roman political machine, and threatened the very fabric of Rome itself. Anger, betrayal, dismay, grief, panic, disbelief. Not words one would usually associate with the death of someone that history has led us to believe was the scourge of the Senate and the people of Rome. Not sentiment save for the death of a childless, childish, feckless, lazy lout. Everyone wanted him gone, right? No, his death didn't make things better. It made them much, much worse. There's been so much written about Nero and so much more left to write that it would seem wasteful to fill up your time with what we already know about him. We know about his time as emperor and his character, less so about the complex power plays of the political system he operated in, and a subsequent effect on his image and that of Rome itself. So, instead, in determining the true extent of Nero's status as one of history's greatest motherfuckers, we're going to look a little bit more closely at the other thing that he did that was really important, die. So how did Nero die? Um, more subtly, why did he die? Any history of Nero is automatically dominated by his personality. 
And whilst he may not have been the person his reputation has always made him out to be, it's worth evaluating how the political system of the principate in which he operated threw up difficulties that the young, vain and insecure man struggled and eventually spectacularly failed to deal with. Was the fall of the Julio-Claudian line the accidental outcome of mismanaged yet trivial events? A blind panic by a young emperor exacerbated by bumbling bureaucracy and bogeyman fears? Or was Nero's hold on power much stronger than he himself believed? If so, what caused him to let that power slip? His own failings? Paranoia? Or simply one falling domino too many in a cascade that he couldn't arrest? The last year of his reign, 68 AD, saw defections and revolt that caused him to flee Rome in fear of his life, an overreaction that ironically sealed his fate. He met the challenges of 68 with an odd mixture of ennui, fateful acceptance and blind panic, when a steadier and wiser hand and a cooler temper might have saved him. Tacitus tells us that he was forced from office by messages and rumours rather than force of arms. Whispers and spooks did for Nero. Gaius Julius Vindex, the governor of Gallia Lugendensis, central and northern France, started trouble around the end of 67 by sending out a series of letters to other provincial governors, testing the waters of rebellion to see who would be interested. Most of them simply forwarded letters straight to Rome, but Sulpicius Galba, the governor of Hispania Tarraconensis in Spain, simply ignored them. The subsequent absence of Galba's forwarded copies of these letters tweaked Nero's doubts about him. Had Galba kept the letters? Was he planning on responding? One could simply read it the way Galba had intended, namely that he wasn't interested in the least, or one could read their absence with suspicion. Nero responded in a rational, calm manner for which he was famous by issuing a death warrant for Galba, that the governor himself intercepted before it could be enforced. Again, a little rash paranoia on Nero's part started a ball rolling that never need have moved. Vindex himself had little ambition to become emperor, but he owed allegiance to the memory of Agrippina, Nero's mother, and had been part of the conspiracy in 59 that led Nero to assassinate her. Vindex's association died with her, but he still harboured a desire to see someone else on the throne than her son. If it wasn't going to be him, he could kick up enough fuss to see that it at least be someone other than Nero. Vindex finally showed his hand in the middle of March 68, and in all likelihood this was forced on him early as the revolt was planned for January of the following year when the legions would swear their oaths, which would have given Vindex more time to secure the men he needed. When news of the Vindex revolt reached Nero in Naples on March 23rd, with great portent the anniversary of the death of his mother, Nero did, well, nothing. He didn't even respond to calls from the Senate for a week, and why would he? Vindex didn't have the breeding, the backing, or even the men, and there was no reason for Nero to doubt the loyalty of the legions in France. On top of that, the job of dealing with shitty Gallic upstarts had long been franchised out to the governor of Upper Germany, and Nero had only just appointed Virginius Rufus to that post a year earlier, so Rufus's loyalty wasn't in question. The rebellion had no backing, Vindex had no family, he had no men, and it was someone else's job to sort the shit out. Nero lolled around playing the liar, eating, farting, fucking and remaining calm. Vindex did what only a man with nothing in his locker could do, and kicked up a racket. Making more noise and boasting more idle threats than his means would allow, he eventually provoked Nero into action, and the emperor wrote to the senate demanding a public display of loyalty, which he got, and then returned to Rome ostentatiously to hold a meeting with them. Even then, Vindex's shenanigans came low on the agenda, 
below the mooted construction of musical water organs, which sound fantastic, and which Nero thought would be an absolute blast. He seemed unfazed, but aware that he needed to start positioning himself carefully. A few days later came more alarming news. Galba was not only not dead, he was fucking pissed. And realising that inadvertently he had his allegiances switched, had accepted a second letter of invitation from Vindex, and on April the 3rd, declared himself Legate of the Senate and People of Rome. Galba had one scant legion to his name, but he had a wide and loyal population base from which to recruit, and also found support in the governor of Lusitania, Marcus Otto. Nero spectacularly abandoned his calm response, and perhaps wanting to look like he was some sort of ancient fucking Rambo, responded with vigour. He deposed the consul and took direct power himself, insulting any sympathetic ears he had in the Senate by taking away one of their ruling numbers, and the Senate duly declared Galba an enemy of the people, as if Galba hadn't just done that himself, and confiscated his property. Nero summoned troops from around the empire, from Germany, Britain and Illyricum. He raised a whole new legion, the first Odeotrix, the faithful, from the navy fleet at Messinum, and sent all of them to act as a firewall in northern Italy under the command of Petronius Turplianus, former governor of Britain. And Nero, of course, stayed right where he was. He was many things, but he was no general. Events between mid-April and Nero's death on June the 9th are sketchy at best. At some point, after learning about Galba, Nero hears that Claudius Mesa, legate of the only legion in Africa, has declared himself champion of liberty and begun to recruit auxiliaries. Mesa's treachery is orchestrated by Nero's former ally, Calvia Crispinilla, and this development threatens Africa's vital grain supply to Rome. For the first time among the people and the tradesmen, there is disquiet. The straw that slit the camel's throat, or whatever you say, came paradoxically via a victory. Rufus finally moved against Vindex in May, and the legions of Upper Germany, bolstered by those from Lower Germany, took on Vindex at Visontio and defeated him. Vindex did what was expected of him and took his own life, ostensibly and ironically for a man who had just caused a lot of blood to be spilled, to avoid more blood being spilled. Drunk on victory and just fucking drunk, Rufus's men, who seemed to either lack leadership or had leaders who didn't care, looted the town and tried to make Rufus emperor. Rufus wisely refused the offer, maintaining that they had no right to declare anyone emperor and it must be the Senate and the people of Rome who made that choice. Victory was equally as worrying for Nero as it was for Galba. All Nero seemed to have achieved in winning was raise another pretender to the throne, albeit one who had openly refused it. He wanted fewer potential rivals, not more of them. He sent more reinforcements of loyal generals to the north, in Rubrius Gallus, but this time, crucially, failed to intervene personally when showing his face, even if he stayed the fuck out of way out in any fighting, would surely have cemented a position for him. The 14th Gemini Legion, bolstered by surly Batavian auxiliaries, were restricted by them from acting against Vindex's own Batavians, and later were to claim that they had wrested control of Italy from Nero when the writing was on the wall. Additionally, Tapilianus acted ambiguously, and although he was later executed under Galba as a Nero loyalist, Cassius Dio writes that he acted on behalf of Galba. The reality may be that he, as well as Rufus, were both stalling for time, 
hoping that any questions surrounding Nero's future would be answered in the Senate before any major bloodshed took place. At some point, the Illyricans in Italy also hailed Rufus as emperor, although it's possible that this happened after Nero's death. The news about Rufus, even though he had refused, and rumours of other defections finally convinced Nero that he was fucked, and everyone had deserted him. He believed that he had lost the support of the entire army, which he hadn't, and he could think only of escape. Firstly, he thought to flee to Alexandria, where he would be assured of a welcome, and perhaps even some kind of exiled power, or even him sitting far away from Rome as a kind of unelected president, a ruler in name only whilst others, including the Senate of course, ruled directly from Rome. He begged the Praetorians to follow him, who refused, but it wasn't until Nero had fled Rome that their prefect, Nymphidius Sabinus, declared the guard for Galba. With Nero gone, the Praetorians declared, and the loyalty of the army unclear, the Senate were left with no option but to reverse their declaration on Galba and instead make Nero the enemy of the people. Galba was duly declared emperor. With a handful of loyal freemen at his side, Nero fled to the villa of one of them, Phaon, and there, with the help of another, opened his veins as the sound of approaching horsemen clattered up the cobbled road to intercept him. As he bled to death, he ordered that his tomb be decorated with marble, extracted a promise that his remains not be mutilated, and uttered his famous lament, Qualis Artifex Pereo, what an artist dies in me. Nero's initial inaction when faced with the crisis is easy with hindsight to criticise, but it's not without some justification. There may have been hesitation from Rupus and Turpilianus, but in the end neither of them let Nero down, and the seven legions of the German command proved loyal in the end, despite their somewhat overexcited attempts to claim too much from their victories. Rufus did the right thing by refusing them and bringing their loyalty back into line, but the problem was that Nero was so neurotic and untrusting that even this failed to pacify the nagging voice in his head that everyone was out to get him. Rufus really didn't want to be emperor, but to Nero, his refusal looked more like a stalling tactic, and his actual stalling tactics looked like outright betrayal. Had Nero himself gone to the troops in Germany and northern Italy, both before and after the defeat of Vindex, his own paranoia might have been soothed, and the very public display of loyalty from the troops he would have received would have done wonders for his position. Not that he needed all that much reinforcement, he was in a good position, he just didn't know it. Of the forces he might have shown his face to, he had recruited the first Italica less than two years earlier, and the Audiotrix for this very campaign, and the 14th Gemina from Britain were famed for their loyalty to him even after his death, and nothing at all suggests that any of them favoured Galba over the blood descendant of Augustus, and none of their commanders were openly or privately willing to seduce their troops away from Nero, particularly when his position seemed so secure. He had won. In Rome too, Nero might have acted more astutely to exercise further control. The Senate had diligently done its job in shit-mouthing Galba, and only changed their mind when the Praetorians changed theirs. Men with sharp things make very persuasive arguments. But the guard itself, as Tacitus says, long accustomed to swear allegiance to the Caesars, had been brought to desert Nero more by deceit and incitement than by its own inclination. Nero's very public and very fucking silly idea of sailing off to Egypt to live there and take up a political post was enough for Sabinus, the prefect, to persuade his men that the emperor was fucked and a promise of a huge bribe from Galba did the rest. Nero was in the middle of packing for Egypt when he heard the Praetorians had declared for Galba, 
He was barely even out of Rome and his throne still warm when his own legion abandoned him. Even then, had he acted with determination and confident focus, he could have rescued the situation. Sabinus was prefect, but not the most popular one. He had sold out some of his own officers in the conspiracy a few years earlier, and while the Praetorians swore allegiance to Nero directly, they also counted fully on the loyalty of their own. Had Nero simply had Sabinus stabbed and thrown in the Tiber, even as he fled, and promised to match or even outdo Galba's bribe, then the Praetorians would have no reason to switch allegiance. The guard's loyalty was greater to Nero than it was to Sabinus, but once Nero was out the door and running away, there's only one path of loyalty left to follow, and they followed it. Dio Chrysostom, who's got a great name by the way, writes that Nero's hideout was betrayed by his husband, Sporus, who Nero had married, castrated, and dressed as his wife, Poppea. This wasn't the first man Nero had married, but Sporus expressly played the role of wife, and Dio obviously sees this as him being mistreated by the emperor, and hence the betrayal. Either way, Sporus was with him at the end, which only came when Nero's determination to persuade himself that all was lost overtook any ability he had to think with focus or rationality. He had won, but persuaded himself he had lost. The people loved him to the end, and went on loving him after his death. A cult of the living Nero threw up numerous people claiming to be the reincarnated emperor well into the next century, and the emperors Otto and Vitellius, who followed Galba, but were both gone within a year, thought it worth their while to milk the nostalgia for Nero to bolster their own claims. A year after Nero's death, Otto took his name, restored his statues and continued the work on the decadent Domus Aurea, the Golden House. Otto played heavily on his own effete and youthful manner, basically impersonating Nero. He reinstalled Nero's freemen to their offices, including his widow Sporus. Vitellius erected altars to Nero and had his god-awful songs performed in public. Tacitus tells us that the higher echelons of the plebs with connections to noble families and freemen related to some of Nero's more public victims were given great joy by his death, and these are the people Suetonius described as donning liberty caps and running around in the street dancing in joy. But the common plebs, the Sordida, missed his profligate largesse and his games and decorated his tomb with flowers and erected statues of him in the forum and posted up copies of his edicts as if this could somehow magically summon him back from the dead. Even Nero himself, suddenly as he lay dying, had the idea that if he could reach the forum and speak to the people, all would be forgiven, and his popularity would carry the day. And he was probably right. A little too late by then, of course, but probably right. It's hard not to reach the conclusion that if Nero had somehow managed to shrug off the stench of inevitable failure that clung to him at the end, he could have maintained loyalty and dismissed the revolts of Galba and Mesa, who, after all, were not acting in unison and had very little in the way of resources. Nero's determination to read bad omens into every tea leaf and sluggish, neurotic acceptance of the defeat clouded any better decisions he might have made. However, not all the events can be explained simply by his panic and serendipity. Support for the rebels was weak, but still enough to cause some alarm. Vindex claimed to have 100,000 men, which was bullshit designed to impress Galba, and anyway, he lost 20,000 of them at Visontio. But Galba was able to raise a legion and auxiliaries, as well as form his own senate and equestrian bodyguard from the social elite, and Mesa could do the same in Africa. 
and what were the reasons for their disaffection? Whilst the narrative of Gallic independence finds some traction in the supposed attempts to form an empire of the Gauls a few years later, the lack of evidence for any unifying tribal identity among the Gauls, and the fact that the leaders of the Gallic revolt of 70 AD are notably not the same people who were supporting Vindex, discredits that idea. Moreover, the numismatic evidence shows that Vindex was attempting to return to Augustan political and moral values. He wanted liberation from tyranny, not from Rome. What seems to have motivated Galba, Vindex and Mesa was Nero's rash regime. Cassius Dio tells us of higher taxes in Gaul. Plutarch notes that Galba complains about the treatment handed out to those in his province by Nero's lackeys. Pliny tells us of the six fantastically wealthy landowners in Africa, although he doesn't name them, who were executed and had their lands taken. Add into that the suffering in Judea at the hands of Gessius Florius, confiscations in Egypt and harsh taxation in Greece, and a picture emerges of Nero not only harming those close to himself, but those around the empire too. The difference between the previous major uprising against Nero's empire in Britain with Boudicca in 61 and Judea in 66 is that this time it took place with the connivance of, and at the initiative of, Roman commanders and officials. This wasn't a populist pitchfork-waving mob, but the very machinery of the Roman state at open rebellion against its leader. Even against the fabric of Rome itself, these are verdicts on Nero's rule by the people charged with enforcing it. Tacitus, as always, puts his own words into the mouth of historical figures, this time Galba. It was not Vindex with his unarmed province, nor I with one legion that freed the people from Nero's yoke, but his own monstrousness and extravagance. Nero might have done more to avert his own downfall, and it was far from as inevitable as he seemed to come to believe it was, but it was not without reason. Nero's downfall can then be explained largely by these underlying causes, but there should also be considered the very nature of the Principate itself. The causes given by the ancient sources are all firmly Nero's fault, his viciousness ultimately proving his undoing. But is that sufficient? The early years of the Augustan Empire were hailed as the Golden Age of Rome, described with fawning verbosity decades later by their old curmudgeon Tacitus, and still lovingly eulogised 300 years later by writers who had long ago forgotten or simply didn't care what was golden about them. The very notion of the Golden Age was enough to stir the narrative of patriotic passion. Nero bathed in the popularity and love his conduct brought him, yet struggled eventually to keep those plates spinning. The sheer demands of the role and the complex interactions and unresolved contradiction of politics put too much strain on the callow shoulders of the fragile young Nero and exposed his lack of political nous. What we see in Nero's collapse is a clash between the weakness of his character and the restraints of the position he was asked to hold. The problem with the ancient sources is that they don't explicitly analyse the performance of the Principate in terms of the machinery of state. We get plenty about what an asshole Nero was, and we get a meta-narrative about how popular an emperor he was, but we never get any commentary about how good he was at executing the role he'd been elevated to. We get a lot about what a duck he was, and we get a lot about how he could make all the passengers on the bus happy, but we don't get anything about the fact that he couldn't drive or how shitty the bus was. Did Nero fail not only because he was an asshole and he didn't know how to do his job properly, 
but also because the very system itself was unworkable. Could another system have been found that better suited his skills and allowed him to flourish in the role? The idea that their own system of government, and people like Tacitus are, remember, the system incarnate, could have contributed to the political disaster of the reign and death of Nero is just about the last thing that would have ever crossed their minds. Blaming the system, and by inference themselves, was unthinkable. Better to lay the blame squarely at the feet of a man who had no hope of ever being able to do the job properly. For people like Tacitus, the Republic was the much-lamented zenith of Roman institutions. Tacitus, who could find something to moan about in almost any situation, the brilliant old bastard, could find nothing but lavish praise for the mixed constitution to which the Republic was likened, only accepting that it didn't last forever. In his, and the wider Roman view, this glorious system had to be abandoned again, not because it was flawed, but because it had become infected with the vices of avarice, envy and raw ambition, whilst Julius Caesar's ruthless drive towards autocracy had set an irresistible blueprint for power. The Principate was seen as the end game for the Republic, which could no longer be maintained without civil war. The system was resented for its false nature in that sovereign power was said to reside in the hands of the Senate and the people, whereas in the cold light of day it was in the hands of a monarchy. And the false nature is presented not only as a systemic failure, but as the hypocrisy of the Principates, with Tiberius in particular feeling Tacitus' ire. The only open criticism of Augustan government with its practice of hereditary succession was not its failings or the failings of republican ideals, but that it allowed evil men to come to power unchecked. And of course, the Roman rose-tinted view of the republican constitution doesn't mask the terrific violence, chaos and ambition that dirted its last years. Neither did it show how this was encouraged by a political and economic model not geared to the strain of running an empire. Similarly, the sources ignored the weaknesses of the Augustan model, and however blind those sources are to those failings, they played a part. Problems regarding imperial freemen, like slimy modern-day lobbyists, the Senate, ideology and hereditary succession, have been used to explain Nero's inability to maintain his popular style without stamping on too many toes along the way. But a broken system is a broken system, no matter who you put in charge, and whoever it is, there is only so long they can keep all the balls in the air at once. When it comes to succession, the main problem presented by the situation was technically there wasn't one. The emperor is not a monarch, and as such, the recognition of successive heirs, dominant as it was in practice, had zero legal standing. In theory, the choice of successor lay in the hands of the people in the Senate, but the uncertainty runs even deeper because not only was there no legal obligation to recognise a successor, there was no legal obligation to even have a successor, or, while we're at it, no legal obligation to have an emperor at all. Each incumbent of the throne is sworn for life and his office dies with him. The period of, between the death of the previous office holder and the swearing in of the new, however brief it may be, saw the Senate fully in charge of all Rome's affairs, and they could just have easily have sworn in nobody at all. The Augustan view of the emperor, a man exercising various magisterial functions according to a mandate given him by the senate and the people, not only justified Tiberius throwing open for senatorial debate the manner and duration of an emperor's power, it also sanctioned the attempt of the consuls in the senate after the murder of Caligula 
to dispense with the whole fucking sordist mess and revert to a republic. The terrifying prospect of a civil war that such a move would have provoked spurred the Praetorians into action, and together with the freedmen who had everything to lose on the Republic, hoiked Claudius out from behind whatever curtain he was hiding, shitting himself because he was Caligula's nearest relative, and plonked him on the dais with a bold shout of, Look at this motherfucker! A Germanicus! That was enough to snuff out the candle of Republican ideals in 41 AD and effectively keep it snuffed out. In a newly formed tradition then, the emperor must be dragged from behind whatever piece of upholstery he was hiding, so he may be invested with the traditional powers. When Galba, making his pitch, declared himself only legate, he was paying lip service to the notion of the principate, whilst not openly seeking the office. The Senate demonstrated that their approval was required by first te- telling Galba to go fuck himself, and then flatly denying the already held claim of Nero, descendant of Augustus and adopted son of Claudius, and telling Galba to unfuck himself. Nero had the claim, but it was nothing without the Senate's approval. The German legions who had dealt with Vindex and tempted Rufus refused to swear allegiance to Galba directly, and instead left it to the Senate to decide, who of course decided on Galba. But the oath was meaningless. A new emperor had to be put up for approval, and there was no recognised system for candidacy or for election. There were no rules for eligibility, only a set of procedures for transferring power. The weaknesses and dangers inherent in the system are clear to see. If any ruler approved by the Senate and the people was legitimate, however he came to be put forward, then no emperor need to be tolerated for long. No wonder then that someone already prone to paranoia saw danger lurking at every corner of the Senate. They could, at least in theory, cut him off at any time. Nero was constantly at strife with the Senate because being usurped was permissible on constitutional grounds. The emperor's autocratic power was tempered constantly by revolt or the threat of revolt. Nero walked a knife edge between the adoration of the people and the threat posed by the Senate. For one so neurotic, it was an impossible cross to bear. Whilst both the Republican and Augustan models strive to achieve a perfect principate in where the incumbent was only a placeholder, exercising his powers at the whim of the Senate and the people, in reality it was realised that the best way of providing stability for that incumbent was to designate his own successor and then secure enough power for him to leave him in a position strong enough to carry on the legacy. And this could be recognised on death legally through the process of will or adoption. The emperor not only had to arm wrestle the Senate constantly for his own power, but engineer a position in which his succession became inevitable. Put your successor in a strong enough position and he acts like a firewall between the throne and the Senate. It would be pointless for them to get rid of the the incumbent if incumbent 2.0 is waiting in the wings to not only continue the legacy, but wreak a little revenge if it needed wreaking. This was quickly regarded as the normal route to power. However, alternatives soon arose for nomination, as with Claudius and his curtain, or Vespasian with his legions, or Nerva with his palace minions. In choosing a successor, the incumbent would start with blood ties rather than merit or favour, and this originally had the advantage of stifling ambition and softening envy. As the younger Pliny put it, men tolerate with greater equanimity the evil progeny fortune has given an emperor than the bad choice he himself has made. At least at the start, the emperor could say, hey, it's not my fault, I didn't pick him. He was talking about Trajan, 
And to be fair, the childless Nerva had adopted Trajan, who was not related to him at all. Pliny is clearly extolling the virtues of selection on merit. He goes on to hope that Trajan has a son who can follow him. Thirty years earlier, Galba, the first to hold the post without any regnal family claim whatsoever, and childless to boot, decided to adopt a man of suitable descent, Lucius Calpurnius Piso Licianianus, let's call him Piso because it's just easier. In doing so, he claims to be repudiating the family monopoly that has stood since Augustus and choosing the man he feels best suited for the job. In practice, Piso had long been a favourite of Galba and had been designated a son in his will. Adoption had long been the way of continuing the line when nature failed, and Galba and Pliny are just making a virtue of necessity. For Pliny, recent memories of Nero and Domitian, who had both gained the throne by dynastic descent, made the idea of selection on merit seem a much better idea, thanks. Apart from the guarded words mentioned, there's little evidence for criticism of hereditary succession. Even an old Stoic like Seneca, who would naturally emerge selection on merit, was prepared to justify the practice on the grounds that in keeping the tradition going, one was showing gratitude to the fourth fathers, and in particular to Augustus, who had set the whole bowl rolling in the first place. The Principate itself encouraged fear of usurpers on one side and ambition on the other, largely because there were no clear criteria for suitability. Anyone could theoretically manoeuvre himself into position, and the man in position was always the prime candidate. And since there were no clear guidelines on who could gain the succession, descendants of all manner of noble families, who had been equal at birth with people who were later promoted up the chain of succession, people with the status of the Julii and the Claudii, old Republican stalwarts, might now also cherish their chance of being next cab off the rank. Augustus rebuked one traitor with the line, and I paraphrase, if all that is stopping you from power is me, then what of all the other great and worthy men of renown? All that would be stopping them is you. Augustus had, however, carefully laid down the plans for succession and, after a bit of a wrangle, he had his way. He gained his own power via the adoption by and the will of Julius Caesar, and he did the same first by adopting Gaius and Lucius, who were both to die relatively young, and then Tiberius, who he also made heir. Even this had ambiguity as Gaius and Lucius were his blood grandsons, and he favoured them first over Tiberius and Drusus, his adopted sons. Even after the death of his grandsons, he had Tiberius adopt Germanicus, Caligula's father and Claudius his brother, as part of the deal whereby he would adopt him, thus clearly showing that a brief detour away from blood relatives, back to Tiberius again and then back to Germanicus, the husband of Augustus's granddaughter Agrippina, and the fact that he deliberately wants to, the line to go back to Germanicus implies that Augustus saw direct blood descent as important. It's perhaps not surprising that in the end, the massively popular war hero of Germanicus dies suddenly of illness whilst on campaign, allowing Tiberius to name a successor himself, even if that succession simply skips a generation to Caligula. When Caligula was murdered, Claudius was presented as the nearest surviving male relative of the dead emperor. However, he was not in the direct line of descent from Augustus, either by birth or adoption, and lacked either the name Julius or Caesar, which he rectified by immediately calling himself Tiberius Claudius Caesar. 
Claudius's sons inherited blood via Augustus's sister Octavia, but also faced stiff potential competition from potential rivals who were older and even more direct descendants of Augustus, such as Rubelius Plautus, the great-grandson of Tiberius, and, of course, the son of his fourth wife, Nero. It's all very complicated, I know. But Nero's adoption by Claudius gave him not only then the correct bloodline, but familial descent from the reigning emperor, and the young Nero outshone, in terms of qualification, Claudius's surviving son, Britannicus, and all the other names floating around. He had a double claim to succession. The difficulties thrown up by a lack of a law concerning succession are made even more complicated by the marriage policy of the imperial line. Yeah, even more complicated. For them to have embarked on the practice of dynastic marriages with foreign houses, something later medieval rulers used with enthusiasm to secure alliances, would have been very un-Roman. One didn't want to sully the line with the sweaty, beardy blood of some horrible fucking barbarian oik. And anyway, foreigners, even rulers, are vassals to the Roman state, not equals in it. They were terrible candidates for intermarriage. Octavian's gleeful slander of his rival Antony's relationship with the distinctly un-Roman Cleopatra is a great example. Octavian paints him as trying to thin the purity of Roman blood with this unhealthy alliance with this kind of eastern bitch. The only alternative to marriage then, as marrying beneath oneself was literally impossible, was to marry very close to the line or among the thin veneer of Roman elite in society. The result is a bewildering array of senators, generals and equestrians with some claim of kinship to the ruling family. And as we've just seen, even a familial tie will be enough to get you into the queue. Like a chain reaction, these marriages generated more marriages at the elite level. And who else was there for these children of these marriages to marry but other children of these marriages? And as such, it produced more and more and more eligible suitors to the throne. The more the Julio-Claudians fucked, the more people there were with at least some claim to the throne. And with no rules to succession other than, it seemed, being related to somebody who was, or had been at some point, ruler, it didn't weaken each person's claim, but strengthened them. In modern royal families, each child born is one step further away from ever becoming king or queen. But in Rome, each child born is a potential threat. And the surviving blood descendants of emperors grew up and fucked and had more babies. Claudius had multiple marriages, each one dragging in more and more potential claimants like some great fucking dynastic black hole. Like any monarch, the emperor could only be removed from office by force. There was no time limit on his rule, no retirement plan, and even if he wanted to step back, having the spectre of a former emperor kicking around the palace would have been far too much for the successor to bear, and they would have soon found themselves accidentally being strangled to death in the bath. But unlike a monarch, and no matter how long the throne remained in the family, men of comparable power and pedigree could feel with some justification, that they also had a legitimate tilt at office. Whilst the emperor remained in possession of his faculties, he could clearly see that it would be impossible to destroy or disgrace everyone who had a claim. He'd have to fuck up half of Rome's ruling elite, the half of testicles anyway, 
all it would do is strengthen the resolve of those who survived to strike for power. By Nero's time, the number of people in that queue would have reached into the thousands. And all the while it grew and grew and edged closer until Nero could, could secure his own succession and reinforce his power accordingly. As a result, court was teeming with rival factions centred around various claimants, many of whom could, and did, command armies. Free men whispered in whatever ear they thought more malleable at the time, and imperial women, always a dominant force behind the scenes, plotted on behalf of their own offspring. Praetorian prefects were appointed, unappointed and murdered. Equestrians and senators lost their lives through involvement in real or imaginary plots. Some of these plots were not even against the emperor himself, simply over who got to be bumped up the line of potential succession. The pressure of this insecurity made two great demands on the fortitude and character of the emperor, and the issue of succession accounts for much of the aristocratic carnage in which the reigns of Tiberius, Caligula and Claudius ended. Claudius alone, often such a figure of meek compliance in the historical narrative, was responsible for the deaths of over 200 equestrians and 35 senators, all of them related in some way to the imperial line. Lack of hereditary principles, an absence of framework for succession, and intermarriage meant that Nero was faced with the bewildering and terrifying number of potential rivals. Outside of the chaos surrounding the death of Caligula, and in the flowery nonsense prose of wistful poets and writers, the restoration of the Republic never gained any serious traction, and instead the lack of hereditary principles showed in threats, real or imagined, from nobles outside the imperial line, as well as dynastic rivals inside it. Even the usurpers had reason to fear their own usurpers. Not only did they have to worry about stealing someone else's claim to the throne, but someone stealing their own attempt to steal the throne. People hatched plots to hijack other plots. Not only did you have to plot the downfall of those above you in succession, but those below you and around you. You had to plot to get into the plot that was going to plot the downfall. You had to be five positions away from it ever being considered and, and having to look over your shoulder at some even more distant relative with an even more spurious claim coming up hard on the rails on the inside. By the time of Nero's reign, being of good Republican family stock wasn't enough. There were enough people around with kinship to the distant Republican families of old to have qualified half of Europe for office. Rome was teeming with candidates. Claudius's connections illustrate how suddenly the supply of rivals could multiply. His first wife, Plautia, had given him a son, Drusus, who died before adulthood. But even after their divorce, one of her brothers was made a patrician by Claudius, and the adopted son of another became consul in 45. In the older branch of her family, Aulus Plautius led the invasion of Britain in 43, and his nephew was connected enough to escape death through his involvement in some plot or another. Nero made his pardon the first act of clemency on gaming power. Nero faced formidable descendants of Claudius's predecessors, notably Rubellius Plautius and the whole of the Junii Silani clan. Nero's mother Agrippina did what she could to fuck them over and Nero carried on the work. As Tacitus says of Marcus Junius Silanus, who Agrippina had executed on Nero's succession, he was a great, great grandson of Augustus, and that was the cause of his death. There were more distant connections. Agrippina's sister, Julia Livilla, 
had married Marcus Vinicus, and the sons of his relative, Annius Vicinianus, both died because they grew too much of a threat to Nero. The surfeit of rivals faced by the young Nero may explain the story recounted by Tacitus in the year 61 as part of the obituary of Paulus Memmius Regulus. But when Nero was ill and his courtiers were predicting the downfall of Rome if anything happened to him, the emperor remarked that the state had in reserve Memmius Regulus, even though he was by then an old man. Despite Nero pointing out a potential rival, he had not named Regulus as his successor after all, Regulus survived, protected by his inactivity at court. Sometimes the best thing one could do in imperial circles was as little as possible and hope nobody noticed you. His undistinguished ancestry and a wealth that was enough to buy him power were not so much as to provoke envy. He was rich, but not too rich. He was Goldilocks rich. The story of a dying emperor naming someone the state can rely on is pretty standard historical fare. This version is odd because it's hard to place in the timeline. Suetonius mentions three major illnesses suffered by Nero, and only one can be placed before 61, in the year 60, and that hardly allows time for regular survival to merit comment. Why make such a fuss about him surviving when he only did so for a few more months? Instead, the story might be trying to make another point, namely that Regulus, consul in 31, was the oldest surviving consul that Nero could trust. There were surviving consuls going back as far as 29, all of whom had a good claim to succession, but Regulus was a man of peace and a steady hand who showed absolutely no ambition and a willingness to comply without protest, and such a man could be left in charge to manage the affairs of state whilst Nero lay ill, without taking that as an opportunity to seize power himself. It was the same gamble that Nero later made with the mule-breeding nobody general Vespasian. Vespasian could be trusted because who would ever think that such an oik could become emperor? Vespasian could, that's who, and he promptly did. Nero's own marriages had continued the wild multiplication of suitable candidates. He had Rufus Crispinus, his wife Poppea's child by her first marriage, drowned because the little boy liked to play at being general, and that was far too much ambition so early. The system encouraged fears to which Nero was already prone, but his obsession with comets, portents of a change of ruler, and his own tendency to paranoia, which he shared with his mother, became more frenzied when he realised he was facing a bigger problem than any of his predecessors. He was surrounded by descendants of Republican families as illustrious as his own. And not only that, but the number of men who claimed direct descent from previous emperors spiralled as the years went on. The snowball of looming candidates grew by the month. When Nero died, the Julio-Claudian line was nearly a hundred years old and no other was to last as long. By the time Vespasian had established the Flavians, the remnants of Republican dynasty had almost been destroyed, either by Nero, by civil war, or by retributions. The link with the Augustii and suddenly hundreds of candidates were cut adrift. The policy of intermarriage within the ruling classes still remained and went on causing trouble, but it would take a long time to bring the number of potential rivals back to the level it reached under Nero. When Titus succeeded Vespasian in 79, he was the first natural son of an emperor to do so. His reign was brief, but again succession was smooth. 
this time to his brother Domitian, an absolute motherfucker who shared Nero's talents for cruelty and paranoia, tendencies that drove him to become the antithesis of his father and brother. He led an ugly and brutal reign of terror and paranoia at every turn, with rivals to be slaughtered at every turn, and nobody to trust. Domitian shared Nero's horrible character, but he also shared the failings of the machinery of state. Once again, the system had put the wrong man on the throne, a failure of a leader running a broken system. In the end, the paranoia of revolt, inflamed by the broken system, the lack of a successor to bolster his position, and just being a massive fucking arsehole, accounted for Nero. He never achieved a respected and consistent image as emperor as he craved, and died knowing that his failure was total. He could have sacrificed his popularity at the end and saved power, but perhaps he saw that future as betraying everything he personally believed in. Nero was many things, a maniac, a tyrant, and certainly a major motherfucker, but he was also a hopeless romantic, and once he saw that slipping away from him, it was the final straw. He could face losing his status as emperor. He couldn't face losing his status as a Byronesque dandy. Qualis Artifex Pereo, indeed. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find us on all the usual social media outlets. We're on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for History's Most Notorious. We've got a Facebook group you can join and have a good natter about almost anything to do with history. We don't really mind what. And you can subscribe via the links provided to our Acast site where you can sign up and get all our content free from ads and sponsorship plus access to all our archives. Or you can visit us at www.patreon.com slash History's Most Notorious. All the links for that are available on the social media where you can subscribe for all our content, plus Patreon exclusives like downloads of all episodes in text format, which you can keep or screw into a ball and throw at the cat, plus access to polls where you can help influence later content and exclusive merchandise only available via Patreon. Your support means we can bring you more content and we couldn't do it without you, so thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.